Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. After some years, he went down to Ahab in Samaria, and Ahab killed an abundance of sheep and oxen for him and for the people who were with him, and induced him to go up against Ramoth-Gilead. Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Will you go with me to Ramoth-Gilead? He answered him, I am as you are, my people as your people. We will be with you in the wall. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, 400 men, and said to them, Shall we go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for God will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord to whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes. And they were sitting on the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chenana, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, With these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Our scripture reading now is from Zechariah. It's chapter 1 and verses 18 to 21. Zechariah is the last but one books of the Old Testament. Chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. It's one of the visions that the Lord gives to Zechariah. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And I said, Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I said, What are these coming to do? He said, These are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations, who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. Zechariah is one of the prophets that uh, prophesied to the Lord's people at the Lord's command 
after the time when they came back from their exile. Uh, his colleague was Haggai, they're mentioned together, uh, and the Lord used them both to speak to the people. Uh, Zechariah, perhaps not uh, often read, uh, not often preached upon maybe, uh, Luther called him the quintessential prophet. Um, by that he means that he really did speak the word of God to the people, but also that he looks forward to Christ. And especially in the latter parts of the, the book of Zechariah, he will speak very plainly of Christ. Uh, thoughts that are taken up in the Gospels in the New Testament too. Zechariah's purpose, the Lord's purpose through Zechariah, is to encourage the returned exiles, to reassure them that the Lord's will to them is for good, to encourage them, to reassure them in the Lord's work, and to speak about the coming Messiah. And in these verses, it speaks of the forces contrary to Israel. They're the horns. The forces contrary to Israel that have harmed Israel and could still do them harm. And it says they will be terrified and cast down by God by the use of the means that he chooses. They're the craftsmen. So let's have a look at the return from exile and then the horns of the craftsmen. Uh, we need to understand a little bit about the historical background so that we can fit everything in place and so that it will also help, it, help us to apply this scripture to, to ourselves in these days. Israel came out of Egypt, uh, round figures, about 1400 BC. Uh, they lived in the land until about 600 BC, so 800 years. And then the Lord sent them into exile uh, in the nation of Babylon. And he sent them into exile to chasten them, to purify them. Uh, the nation of Israel had been, all through those 800 years, it had been a long, sorry story in some cases. Uh, three steps forward, four steps backwards sometimes. And they had ended up really with... Uh, uh, the sin of idolatry really entrenched in the nation. So they, they would worship other gods. And very literally, they would have the statues of these other gods uh, uh, in various points around their towns. They would worship them. They, they, they would even put them in place in the temple of God. And the Lord sent the prophets many times uh, to speak to them. And, and the priests many times to explain the law to them. But they wouldn't listen. So in the end, the Lord said, you must go into exile for 70 years. They'll be chastened far away from your land. That was how it was. But the Lord brought them back, a chastened nation. And from then on, you never hear anything about idols spoken of in Israel. Search the pages of the New Testament of the Gospels never a thing about idols. They had learnt. So they came back from exile. There was, um, the Babylonian Empire was overtaken by the Persian Empire. And the Persian Emperor, a man called Cyrus, Cyrus made a decree that the people of Israel would be able to go back to their own home country 
and to rebuild the temple of God there. And so they went back. Now, it wasn't a, a case of let's up sticks and all go and they lived happily ever after. It was a, a whole process. The going back took about 100 years altogether. And they went back in dribs and drabs and in piecemeal. And when they got back there, it was far from easy. There was lots of opposition for them. And so the Lord knew that they needed help and encouragement over that time of return. And he sent his prophets, principally Zechariah and Haggai, to speak to them. Well, in Haggai, in uh, the, the written prophecy of Haggai, the early chapters are visions speaking to these encouragements. And so the Lord reassures them of his goodwill towards them, that they really could do the Lord's work. They were terribly dispirited. That he was for them, not against them. But that he was against their enemies. That's where the horns come in, the horns. This vision says that forces that have harmed Israel in the past and could still harm them now would be cast down by God, but by the use of means. And a major help for the people of God is the removal of the powers against them. That is the horns described here. And that's true, not just for that little slot in time of God's people returning. It's true for the church worldwide throughout time as well. God is able to remove the opposition to his church. The horns represent destructive power. Think back to that reading in two chronicles that we had. Uh, this false prophet uh, made horns of iron and he used them to demonstrate uh, what he, he, he hoped uh, Israel would do to the Syrians. Uh, they were weapons of war in a, in a sense. Uh, they were aggression towards, uh, towards others. So the horns represent uh, aggression, weapons, opposition towards others. There are four horns in Zechariah. Why are there four? Well, I don't think we should uh, place too much emphasis on the actual number. What he's saying is that uh, there were all of these horns, and the horns come from the four quarters. Um, uh, from four quarters, we say, uh, from all quarters. Everything's happening from all quarters, we say. Uh, we talk about uh, um, the, the four corners of, of this round world. Uh, so when he's saying about the four, it just means just from everywhere. It's the piling in on, on the nation. And see what the horns did. They scattered the people. And no one raised their head. There were no leaders. There was no opposition. Uh, the horns just did whatever they wanted to, uh, to the people. And this is speaking about things like uh, the aggression of the hostile nations uh, around of Babylon um, and of the, the other nations. The horns depict ongoing spiritual reality of conflict for the church and for Christians. They represent persecution of hostile powers. They represent the inimical anti-Christian philosophies these isms, 
that are against the people of God and ultimately against God himself. These opposing powers, these opposing isms, scatter churches and Christians. Persecution is a horrible thing. Um, listen to what John Owen says about persecution. This is in, uh, from his, uh, his commentary on Hebrews, on Hebrews chapter 2. Some lose the word that they've heard in a time of persecution, Owen says. When persecution arises, says our Saviour, they fall away. Many go on a pace in profession until they come to see the cross. The sight puts them to a stand. And then it turns them quite out of the way. They had not thought of it. They do not like it. We know what havoc this has made among professors in all ages. Commonly, where it, that's persecution, commonly, where it destroys the bodies of ten, it destroys the souls of a hundred. This is the season wherein stars fall from the firmament meaning those who were at the forefront of things, those who are held up as examples, they too fall away at a time of persecution. Persecution commonly destroys the bodies of ten, but the souls of a hundred. Real harm is done. Persecution can wipe out whole Christian churches. Uh, think of North Africa, uh, the onslaught of Islam in the 7th century. Uh, think of Iran, uh, the, the budding early Christian church there, again, just wiped out uh, many centuries ago. Persecution causes great lack, lack of leadership. Uh, congregations are weak and untaught, a prey to heresy. Pray to false teaching. Just think of the Christian congregations in churches today where the church is persecuted. Think of China, think of Iran perhaps. Uh, the congregations are untaught, a prey to heresy, to false teaching. So the horns represent, not just at the time, but the horns represent throughout our Christian era uh, forces that op- oppose and are against the church of God and they're not just um, physical forces but they can be philosophies which weigh in on churches existentialism the, the, the philosophy that says the individual is supreme uh, it's communism perhaps the supremacy of the anti-God state constant exposure to harmful and unbiblical teaching. Uh, The homosexual lobby, the LGBT plus lobby. It's a horn that opposes, that does harm to Christians and the Christian church. Sheer materialism presses down on us. Don't you feel it sometimes? Just just the, the sense in society that we live for today, this is all that we have constantly pushed at us spend, 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 buy, buy, buy really all, it's really all that matters live like there's no tomorrow because there is no tomorrow it's materialism it presses down on us it moulds the public square 
how hard it would be for a politician or a, or a policymaker to say in public, let alone in committee, now what does the Bible have to say on this matter? And this power can seep into our own way of thinking. These are the horns. Powers raged against the church, external to the individual, the world and the devil. Resist them. Yes, but God will come to our aid. That's where the craftsmen come in, the craftsmen. Zechariah next reports in his vision that he sees four craftsmen. And he asks, what are these coming to do? And we'll be wise to, uh, to take our cue from Zechariah and not ask, who are these? But what are they coming to do? Craftsmen do things. Uh, they find solutions to problems. They, they fix things. They do things. They make things. And again, the number four is symbolic. It shows that they are every match for the four horns. What do they do in the, in the vision? They terrify the horns and cast them down. They deal with the horns. They terrify them. It means they, they shoo them away. Like a man shooing away a bee or a wasp. And the horns cast them down. Uh, and the craftsmen cast down the horns to neutralize their power. It's like capturing and detaining a dangerous runaway bull. It's rendered powerless. Note the horns are not destroyed totally. Other nations will arise to persecute the church. The contrary philosophies will resurface in different guises. There's nothing new under the sun. The world and the devil are with us throughout this age, but thankfully not in the age to come. See the craftsmen. Uh, other tr scripture translations will call them carpenters or smiths. Their description is of, on a very human level. They're, they're not the angelic standing army of heaven uh, that Elisha and his servant Gehazi saw. Uh, remember the Syrians had come to, uh, to surround Elisha and Gehazi uh, to, to capture them and take them off. And Gehazi is very worried by this, but Elisha remains calm and he says, Lord, open his eyes. And the Lord does. And Gehazi sees the army of heaven, the chariots of fire and their horsemen all around them. That's not what's here. They're not the craftsmen here. And I take... Take it to mean that these craftsmen are everyday agents of God, whether they're human or whether they're brought about by circumstances. God can act directly, like the destruction of the Assyrian army outside the walls of Jerusalem. But he will, does, use agents or means to work his sovereign will. It's interesting, the Lord, God, is not named in the action in these verses in Zechariah. He's named only to show the vision and to answer a question. Yet surely he's 
behind the action of the craftsmen for the rescue of God's people. Zechariah is being shown by God some of the spiritual unseen realities behind what they have experienced and will experience. There's examples of this throughout the scriptures. One example in the Old Testament is the whole book of Esther. It mentions God not once. And that surely must have been very deliberate. It's not that the writer forgot to put God in. It's not that he, it's not that he didn't believe in God. Obviously not. It was very deliberate. And in fact, Scripture usually assigns actions to the, to the first cause, that is to God. Uh, just think about the wind in Exodus, the book of Exodus. Uh, the Lord brought an east wind upon the land and it blew the locusts in. And the Lord turned the wind to a very strong west wind and it blew the locusts away. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind and the people were able to go through us on dry land. You blew your wind, it says, Exodus 15. Uh, the scripture usually assigns God the first cause to, to everything that happened. There were obviously meteorological conditions that made the wind change. But really it was God that was doing it. But there's plenty of opportunities in Esther for the writer to mention the work of God. But here in Esther... God is at work in the Persian Empire, where these exiles lived. God was working through the human agents in Esther in a complex series of events leading to the saving of Israel from extinction. That was the horn that was terrified and cast down the threat of extinction of the, God, of the people of God. And it's an example of God using means, even through unbelievers, even through these secondary causes. There are other examples you can think about. Think about the fall of communism in Russia, freedom for the Christians in Russia, and the former Russian communist empire, brought about by complex means, but yet God did it. That horn of communist persecution was destroyed or rendered ineffective by complex situations, but yet the craftsmen, but yet God did it. Think of the Reformation in, in Europe. Yes, Luther, but also many city and national officials helped to bring about the Reformation. Freedom for the church, for the horn of harmful Catholic teaching. Think of the band of Christian brothers and sisters in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost, preserved against the opposition of the religious establishment, preserved by the words of the one man, Gamaliel, God's instrument, a craftsman in terms of Zechariah's vision. Think of that band being protected from the might of Rome. Uh, burn a pinch of incense to Caesar and you'll be all right. Nobody need know too much about it. We'll give you, a, give you a little certificate to say you've done it. Otherwise, Christians to the lion. 
could only have been that that little band could expand to hundreds of millions today by God's work neutralizing uh, the forces against them. God has protected his church. So God has ways of working for us in our struggles, in the background by his spirit, as we wage war against the power of the world and the devil. So in Zechariah, God has opened up the curtain just a little bit to show us things that we don't normally see. And he shows them to us in the form of visions and symbolic language. There are the horns. There are the powers at work to scatter us, to destroy our faith, to dispirit us. They're there, not just in the historical context we saw, but all through the Christian era. But God is at work too, sometimes directly, but so often what we call secondary circumstances and secondary events. These actions of God to overcome the destructive horns are called the craftsmen in Zechariah's vision. But in all things, God is sovereign. He will save a people for himself. And the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord God, we thank you that you have the care of your people at heart. Though, Lord, oppressors arise against us, though, Lord, circumstances weigh in against us, though these isms that surround us and threaten to just choke us and smother us, yet you know, O Lord, and you will preserve us, we thank you. We praise you, O Lord, for your work in the background, unseen and unheard, perhaps, except by its effects. And we pray, Father, that you will continue that work to preserve for yourself the people and to preserve us too for yourself. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.